Hello everyone, my name is Matt Potter. I'm one of the elders here at Cornerstone Church. And as Matthew mentioned earlier, we've been going through a series called The Summer in Galilee, where we've been studying Jesus and his ministry throughout the northern Israel region. And you know, the goal here at Cornerstone is not just to become more educated uh, intellectually about Jesus, but the goal is to actually learn about his ministry so that it changes our hearts and changes our conduct and changes our everyday lives. So today we're going to be in the book of Mark. So there's a, a Bible in the pew in front of you if you don't have yours with you. Uh, if you do, please open it to the book of Mark, and we're going to be in chapter 8, and we'll be starting with verse 1. And as you're flipping there, I'm going to go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. Father, I just ask that you would speak through me today, Lord, that my words would not be my own, but they would be yours, Father. Father, help us to transform our hearts through your scriptures, and help us to show compassion to others, Lord, as you've shown to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, we're in uh, the book of Mark, chapter 8, verse 1, and I'm going to go ahead and read the scripture. It says, In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they've been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they'll faint along the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread in such a desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them, and gave them to the disciples who set them before the people. And they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Again, it's Mark 8, 1 through 10. So, you may be thinking, didn't Pastor Matt just speak about Jesus feeding a bunch of people? You'd be correct if you asked yourself that. But Pastor Matt spoke about the feeding of the 5,000. Let's just be honest with each other. I'm kind of like the poor man's version of Pastor Matt. So, if you want, we can just deduct 1,000 people and get some food. Yeah? No? All right. But really, I'm going to ask you to have a little bit of compassion on me here, because that's kind of the theme of the sermon. And I do think it's important for us to understand the difference between the feeding of the 4,000 and the feeding of the 5,000, and why Mark and Matthew specifically chose to include the feeding of the 4,000 in their Gospels. There's some really clear differences. We're going to go through three of them. And then there's one extremely important commonality. And so... If there's nothing else that you take away from the message today, I hope that you'll take away this one very clear point. And that's the demonstration of Christ's compassion is what both the feeding of the 4,000 and the feeding of the 5,000 have in common. And it serves as a bridge that connects both the Jews and the Gentiles in the Bible. So again, we're going to look at Mark 6 first, and that should probably be appearing on your screen. And that's 
referencing the feeding of the 5,000 that Matthew went through where Christ says, or excuse me, where Mark says, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and had compassion on them. And then very similar, similarly, in our verse today, in Mark 8, it says, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd. How amazing is it that this compassion that Jesus had back in, in the biblical times where he was healing people that were paralyzed, he was bringing people like Lazarus back from the dead, he was demonstrating this great compassion, feeding 4,000, 5,000 people, which was really more like 10, 11, 12,000 people when you include women and children, that this compassion that he had is the same compassion that he has for us today. You see, our pains and our hurts and our struggles, the things that we go through today, they move God, and he feels that pain. So I just want to kind of give you a brief warning, a disclosure, if you will, that on the screen, you're going to see something that's kind of graphic. So if, if you don't want to see that, go ahead and close your eyes or, or turn away. It'll only be up there for a few moments. But that's my warning, if you will. So up on the screen is my daughter, Abigail. And that's Abigail last March. At the time, she had been in the hospital for over 10 days. And she had a fever for over 15 days. And at that point in time, she was being transferred from St. Luke's down to CHOP, which was the children's home of Philadelphia. At this point in time, Abigail's fever was so bad that she had these things called rheumatoid nodules popping out on her legs. Really freaky, okay? Like lumps popping out on, on her body parts. In addition to that, she had something, and for you nurses or doctors in the room, you may be familiar with this, this language called a sed rate that was in the 120s to 130s. And the sed rate is, a, is a, a, an inflammation marker that measures how much inflammation you have in your body. And the doctors were telling us that a sed rate that high is enough to kill an adult. And so we got down to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and we, we began to go uh, undergo tests. And all throughout this process, I really want to emphasize, and this is actually something that my wife asked me to emphasize, how grateful we were for the outpouring of compassion of the Cornerstone body. Many of you came to us in love and in prayer. You gave financially to our family. You were there to support us with food. You were by our sides through this whole thing. And that really meant a lot to us. So as we continued to pray to the Lord, because we had no other option, we, there was nothing we could do. We couldn't figure it out on our own. And where things were getting the darkest, after we had a, a brain scan on Abby by a specialist that where we had to put her completely under, and they came back to us and they said, sorry, Mr. Potter, Mrs. Potter, we still have no answers. As things were at an all-time low for us, suddenly Jesus showed up, the source of all compassion. And that next day after the scan, when we were at our lowest, after we were all collectively praying our hearts out, the doctors came to us and they said, we can't explain it. We don't know what happened. We've, we've never seen a drop like this before in a sed rate. Her sed rate literally went from the 120s down to a pretty special number, number in the Bible, seven. And so for my family, this was nothing short of a miracle. And I know the doctors knew that too. So why am I telling you this? And as we're, we're going through this here, hopefully you're seeing a picture of Abby as well, looking much better this time 
um, as she was entering the 2nd Street campus a couple of Sundays ago uh, with her Bible and her sister, um, looking much healthier. And the Lord's done magnificent things in her life. She continues to defy odds. But why am I telling you this story? I'm telling it to you for two main reasons, predominantly. The first is that my family truly learned that Christ is still moved today by compassion. We learned that Jesus is the source of all compassion, and that you, all of us, his disciples, his apostles, are the distributors of his compassion. We learned that firsthand. And then number two, Revelation 12, 11 says, and they have conquered him, him being the enemy, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, loving not their own lives even unto death. You see, friends, Pastor Tim mentioned this a few weeks ago, and the reality is we are called to share our testimonies. We are called to share our testimonies. And isn't that what the Gerasen demoniac did that Pastor Tim was preaching about? We see in, in scriptures here in Luke 8, Jesus said to him after he healed him and cast out the demons, he said, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And then in Mark 5.20, a little bit earlier in the book of Mark, we see again, he went away and began to proclaim the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Therefore, it's really not a coincidence as we begin to look at today's scriptures that when Jesus returned to the Decapolis, that there was over 4,000, 5,000, probably somewhere around 10,000 people waiting for him. You see, this, this demoniac, his testimony was effective. People could not believe that these demons were gone. His testimony brought people to the Lord. People who likely were lame and blind and weak were traveling far distances to come meet this man, Jesus, who had cast out demons. And so that brings us to one of our first key differences. So we talked about the commonality being the gospel. But the two main differences, or excuse me, the three main differences, starting with the first, is location, location, location. So the Decapolis, if we were to break that word out, Decapolis, Deca stands for 10, and polis stands for city. So this is a grouping of 10 cities that were predominantly Greco-Roman cultural cities that are on the southeastern side of the Sea of Galilee. So if, if we're looking at the Sea of Galilee, southeastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And these cities were filled with pagans and Gentiles and people who had no god or many gods. And so Jesus carrying his mission to this region would have been extremely confusing to the disciples. They were likely scratching their heads like, Jesus, why, why are you taking the gospel to these people who are ethnically defiled? They were born defiled. And this is a complete contrast to the feeding of the 5,000. Again, thinking in terms of location. When Matthew spoke about the feeding of the 5,000, he talked about it being in a fishing village, Bethsaida, which was opposite of Capernaum, at the top end of Galilee. This would have been a region that was filled with laws and statutes and pious people who were making sure that you were checking off every box on the list. 
You see, they were so different that when Jews would go to the market and purchase something from a Gentile or interact with a Gentile, they would come back and wash and cleanse their whole bodies with what they considered clean water to wash off the defilement. See, Jesus was teaching something that was extremely radical for his time. He was teaching that it's not ethnicity, it's not finances, it's not these things that defile you before God, but instead that it's sin, something that all of us, even today, even back then, have in common. It's sin that defiles us before God, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. And that's why Jesus' mission was to wash us in his blood, to wash us in his cleansing blood so that we could be made right before the Father. So the point of these two very different locations was to show that Jesus wanted to take the same message to two very different types of people. The second difference I wanted to touch on, I'm going to use the scripture to outline, which is, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. So we see in the feeding of the 4,000 that the people had been with them for three days before he fed them. And so far I've been preaching for about 15 to 20 minutes. So the good news is we've only got about 71 hours and 40 minutes to go. But seriously, when was the last time that you were so excited to be in the Word that you studied it for days on end. That you were just in prayer for days on end. I mean, I think the closest we probably come in, in modern day culture is going on a retreat or something, right? Getting away for three days. How many of you on your last retreat waited till day three to eat breakfast? Probably not many, right? And so maybe a better example is doing a three day fast. The hunger pains that you feel during a fast, the closeness you feel to the Holy Spirit, the things that can be revealed to you as you feel those hunger pains, this is likely what the Gentiles were feeling as they waited for three days until Jesus fed them. See, this positive aspect about them being so enthused with Jesus started to turn into his concern for them, that they were going to go limp on their way home, that they were going to faint, which the word faint means go limp. The point is, these 4,000 Gentiles, they were so enthused that they were willing to sit at Jesus' feet, disregard physical nourishment, because the spiritual nourishment they were receiving was so life-changing. And that brings us to our third core difference, which is leftovers. Who here likes a good leftover? I mean, I do. Some things are just better the next day. I mean... Pizza sometimes, maybe chili after it really sits in there and marinates anchovies. Maybe not. I don't know. But Mark 8, 19 through 21, so if we flash ahead in Mark a little bit, we see Jesus recapping the two feedings and comparing them. He says, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said 12. And the seven, th seven for the 4,000, how many basketful of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? 
do we understand? What is he saying here? Christ is clearly telling us we need to draw some kind of conclusion from these leftovers. So again, on the screen here, you should be able to see a little bit of a mathematic numerical breakdown. Okay? So we've got the first feeding, the 5,000, started with five loaves, 12 left over. The second feeding, the 7,000, or excuse me, the 4,000 started with seven loaves, and there was seven baskets left over. There's an interpretive key here in the book of Mark, and it's actually the chapter before the one that we're in now in Mark 8. So in chapter 7, verses 24 to 30, we see Christ referring to bread as being reserved only for the children of Israel. And a Gentile woman, a Syrio-Phoenician woman, responds to Christ saying, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table eat the crumbs of children, of the children. And Christ just loves her answer. He sees that she just like, it clicked. She gets it. There's an aha moment there. And it's very clear to her that 12, the number 12 in terms of the leftovers and in the Bible refers to the 12 tribes of Israel. And that the number 7 in terms of leftovers is referring to the 7 Gentile nations. And we see this referenced in the Old Testament as well in Deuteronomy 7.1. I'm not going to read the the whole scripture. I'm just going to focus on the seven Gentile nations, which is the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, Hivites, excuse me, the Jebusites. That's a lot of ites. I hope I got them all right. But really, if we were to peel back the onion a little bit further, we see that these leftovers, these baskets of leftovers, they're a perfect representation of Christ's redemptive history in the Bible. The old covenant, right? The, the, the relationship with the Jewish people and establishing that with the 12 baskets and the 12 tribes. And then the new covenant and Jesus' relationship through the new covenant with the Gentiles and the seven nations. So, Whether you find this mathematical equation to be interesting or not, what does it really mean? What does it really mean to us from an application standpoint? What should we be taking away from this? And I hope that the conclusion that you're taking away is that the message of the gospel, which is that Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice, the Son of God, came to this earth, he suffered and died to cover our sins, So that when he rose again and conquered sin and death, we would have a way, if we believed in him, to have access to the Heavenly Father. And through this relationship with him and the Heavenly Father, that we can spend all eternity in Christ's presence. That's what we should be taking away. And the fact that that message is for all people was the point. But there's another point I want to circle back to that we touched on a little bit earlier. And this is where we're going to start to move into application. And that's why is it important for us, his apostles, to be distributors of Christ's compassion? I'm a salesperson, and so if there's any salespeople in the crowd, by trade we think a little bit in terms of distribution and distribution points. And so in a sales business, what you're looking for, the sweet spot is, if you're recruiting salespeople, is finding quality distribution points. 
And a quality distribution point or a quality salesperson understands the mission of the company. And through their understanding and their integrity and their reputation, they produce great results and they attract more distribution points just like themselves. And isn't that what we're called to do as disciples of Christ? Isn't that the command we've been given? Therefore, go now and make disciples of all nations? That's the point, isn't it? So if we were to ask ourselves, why is it important to be a distributor of Christ's compassion? The answer is, is because it points people back to Christ. We make new disciples who point more and more people back to Christ. So application point number two in your outline, what prevents us from distributing Christ's compassion? And how do we evaluate how we're really doing with this task? In my observation, the more we fill ourselves with things of the world, the less room we have to store Christ's compassion in our hearts. So if we're to think about it, just like a glass of water, let's start with no water and just fill the glass with muck, okay? And now let's try to dump some water, and we can't because it's filled with muck. But if we dump that muck out, and now the glass is empty, we can fill it up with clean water. And our hearts are the same way. When they're filled with the muck of the world, there's just no room for clean water. Do you think this could be the reason why Jesus tells the rich young ruler who comes up to him and says, Lord, I followed this, and I followed this, and I followed this. And Jesus says, okay, sounds good. Missing one thing. Go sell all your possessions and give them to the, give them to the poor. Maybe he was making room in the young ruler's heart for more compassion, for more love. To illustrate this point just a little bit further, I want to give you a few examples from my life over this past week. These are examples of opportunities for compassion. And I'm also going to touch on a little bit of my sinful nature, the things that also popped up that wanted to prevent me from distributing Christ's compassion. The first involved a sister in Christ, so three very different types of people. A sister in Christ who had just lost a loved one, who was broken, and my initial instinct was to be moved in compassion and reach out to her and tell her how much I loved her and how much I cared for her. But then my sinful nature popped in there and said, out of fear and doubt, maybe you're being too aggressive. Maybe you should just back off. Then I had a non-believer friend of mine who, who I know through business who received really bad medical news and it caused him to have to travel a distance that I knew was going to put new burden and expense upon his life. And initially I thought, well, geez, you know, the Lord's blessed me abundantly. Why don't I help him with that expense? But then my sinful nature popped up and said, well, Matt, you, you've got some expenses too, right? You've got some things that you could probably spend that money on. And then a complete stranger, the third person, who was in a really rough spot. She needed to move something urgently from one area to another. And she needed help. And she came to me and asked for this help. And my, my first very pious thought was, well, you probably did this to yourself. Who finds themselves in this kind of position? 
And then I moved past my piety and I went to selfishness and I thought, well, I got my own stuff to do today. So do you see how the initial movement of the Lord in my heart was towards compassion and then my sinful nature popped up and tried to block it? And that's what happens in our lives if we allow it to. What would Christ do? And so the application point here is I'm going to ask you to really think through this as we're talking right now interactively, and it's in your outlines, is first, what opportunities to demonstrate compassion have come across your path this week? Second, how did you do with these opportunities? Third, could there still be time left to act if you haven't already? And then fourth, if it didn't go well, what got in your way? What part of your sinful nature stopped you? And how can you stop that from happening again? And then last but not least, our third application point today is how do we increase our compassion? And I know that there's some folks probably in the crowd, I have myself thought this way sometimes, that you may be thinking, well, I'm just not a compassionate person. A lot of us rough and tough guys are that way, right? Maybe you just think, well, I'm just not wired that way. That's for my wife. She's very compassionate. Or vice versa. The reality is, is that we are all gifted differently. And that may be true. Compassion may not be a strength of yours naturally. But there are certain things that we can do as disciples, as apostles of the Lord, to increase our compassion. And when I go through these, you're going to think, well, Matt, that's like basic stuff. That's like the fundamentals. Absolutely. And you know what I find in life is sometimes the fundamentals are the hardest things to do. Why do you think that the teams in football, for example, that do the fundamentals win Super Bowls? They block and they tackle. The fundamentals are key in everything. And so the first way to increase your uh, uh, capacity for compassion is through prayer. And so there's certain things that as we think about prayer that, I mean, the Lord can do anything. But if we're praying constantly because we want a fancy new car to keep up with the Joneses, probably not necessarily aligned with his word, right, or his will. It may be. But the reality is, if we pray for things like more compassion, we know for a fact that that's in his word. We know for a fact that his will for us is to be filled with more love and compassion. And so if we ask him for that, if we say, Lord, I recognize that I am just miserable with compassion. I often have a hard heart towards people, and I don't know why, Lord. I need your help with this. He is going to be faithful to give you more of that. And I can tell you that I, I was praying that way this week as I prepared the sermon. And a couple things happened. A, all these opportunities, which I'm just going to have to leave you guessing how they turned out, right? All these opportunities popped in front of me to demonstrate compassion. And then number two, anytime a strong gust of wind came, I cried. <laughs> But in reality, we've got to be praying that way. We've got to be asking for this. 
The second thing we can do from an application standpoint to increase our compassion is service. And so, if you think about this logically, if we are isolating ourselves, if we're focused on just our own lives, and we're just in our own houses and maybe coming to church once a, once a week and just sitting in the pew, other than that, going back home, going to work, and not focused on service, well, then we're naturally going to have less opportunities to distribute compassion. If we're only focused on ourselves, who can we distribute compassion to? And so there's so many opportunities at a church of this size for us to plug in from a service perspective. There's so many opportunities for us to grow in our capacity to show compassion to others that are very practical opportunities. I have to selfishly promote one of them, which is Riverside Ministries. If we were to look at Jesus' life and see who he was attracted to, Jesus was seeking out the poor. Jesus was seeking out the broken. Jesus was seeking out the prostitutes. Jesus was seeking out the people who had all these ailments and needs. And he was putting himself around them. And they were coming to him. And so the opportunities to demonstrate compassion were there. And we have ministries like this at Cornerstone where we can be, if we're imitators of Christ and we want to be more and more like him, we should be putting ourselves around those people so that we have greater and greater opportunities to demonstrate the compassion that Christ is filling in our hearts. And Riverside isn't the only one. There's a lot of wonderful ministries at this church where you have the opportunity to go visit people in the hospital. There's folks in our church who go visit people in jail. There's opportunities at our church to spend time with people from Lafayette that don't have family close by. There's so many opportunities for us to soften our hearts and serve through compassion. And then the last fundamental that I want to focus on today is being in the Word. If Christ is truly our source of compassion, then the way that we get to know him on a deeper level, the way that he is going to reveal deeper and deeper understanding of his nature and who he is to us, is by studying his word. The word of God constantly uses the term abide, which means to stay in. And so if we were to abide in Christ, and we were to stay in his word, and we were to abide and try to learn more and more about why he gives us certain examples and why he did what he did, we're undoubtedly going to become more compassionate as a result. So in closing, I just want to emphasize that Jesus-like compassion, it literally means denying ourselves and putting others first. And this is hard. This is not easy stuff for any of us, including myself. But there's a reason why Jesus' compassion for us and godly compassion, it really is the anecdote for many intrinsic sins like prideful selfishness and fear that permeates a lot of us. It's my hope that as Christ continues to pour out his compassion upon us as a church, the way that he poured out his compassion upon my family through you as you distribute it, that as he continues to pour it out upon us, that we're going to harness that. We're going to harness that 
that compassion that he's shown us, and then we're going to turn that into action and distribute it amongst others all throughout our community, all throughout our workplaces, all throughout our schools, that the people of Cornerstone will be known for distributing Christ's compassion. That's my prayer, and that's my hope for us. Because remember, being a distributor of compassion does one thing predominantly. It points people back to the cross. Amen? Allow me to pray.